You're listening to Why Try, the podcast. Bill O'Connor is founder of the Innovation Genome Project within Autodesk. For a quick overview, the Innovation Genome is designed to answer how does innovation happen and how do we replicate it so that we can make innovation happen more often and more consistently. Here's a talk that he does with some regularity, and if you want to hear that, you can listen to the next episode where we take the audio from that presentation at Autodesk University and make it available in a convenient podcast format. I'll also put a link to that video in the show notes. I really like the interview though, because there's not a ton of overlap with this other presentation, so we get into some pretty interesting and new areas with this as well. I think Bill is a super fun guy, super creative, great personality to have on the show, so I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about the innovation genome and kind of what led you to put it together? Sure. Um, I can tell you a great deal about it. <laughs> I can tell you. Um, I'll just give you an overview, though, right? The top level is um, for the last six years at Autodesk in San Francisco, uh, we've been working on a project called the Autodesk Innovation Genome Project. And at the very top level, what it is is a systematic studying of the greatest thousand innovations in human history, right? And at this point, we've studied 350 innovations in depth from all periods of time, all types of innovations. And um, from that, we've derived this pretty cool innovation methodology, which is comprised of five techniques that all really fit together. And it's all derived not from theory. It's derived from what people have done for millions of years to actually create innovations. So in some ways, it's a really intellectual, theoretically exciting uh, concept, you know, greatest innovations of all time. But in another way, it's supremely practical because none of it is theory, really. We just looked at these 350 innovations, the actual innovations that have changed the world, and we thought, all right, how did they do it? And whenever we asked how did they do it, the same five techniques kept coming up. And so we really wove those techniques into a methodology. And so I talk a lot about the research and the 350 innovations but um, we've actually field tested this technique. Um, of course, we tell people about the research, but what companies want to know, and what Autodesk customers want to know most is how do we do it? So we've actually d- done hundreds of innovation engagements using this methodology with customers from all around the world. And that's going to be Autodesk gigantic customers like Bechtel. And that's also local companies. I've worked with Facebook, uh, Airbnb, Twitter, Google. So um, we've not only done the research, but we've also tested this methodology out, field tested it for the last four years, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. Uh, so and I, have a, I have a few questions about it. But um, So how did you choose which innovations to include? Well, that's a good question. Um, one thing we didn't want to be was uh, capricious or uh, subjective, right? So the one way, and I have to do a shout out to the University of California at Berkeley, UC Berkeley, Go Bears. Um, I, I got a lot of help from MBA students from Berkeley Haas and also from um, the undergrads. So basically when I say we, I mean it, my, my teams of interns over the years. So we set up um, basically a grid. We said periods of history going back from prehistoric to the modern era, divided into five, and types of innovations too. So it was not just business economic innovations and then tech scientific, but also things like intellectual philosophical artistic and um, creative and also, uh, you know, political and government. So we had five categories of types of innovation and we had five periods in history. So we started with that. We started to say, okay, if you think of intellectual breakthroughs in, in like uh, in the year, uh, you know, 500 BC, what are we seeing there? So we tried to be as systematic as possible and we selected. So that was one way we did it with the type and time was one way. 
And then w- within that, all right, well, how do you pick an innovation? We, we really did it on impact. How much did it change the world? How much did it have a lasting impact? So that, that was really the three metrics in a way. Time across time, type, five types, and then pure impact on the world. And that's how, And but you know, we, we trusted our instinct too. We would do this, we identify the innovations in chunks of about 50. So at last count, I think we've identified 650 innovations that we studied uh, 350. So as long as we stay ahead of the actual number we study, we're fine. So um, that's how we really pick them. It's a combination of time, type, and impact. Yeah, that's really interesting. So in addition to things like uh, fire and like the wheel, you have uh, like democracy, uh, different forms of art, maybe. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And, 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 this, and this was the point. The reason for that is everybody studies, when you see the list of the greatest innovations in history, and they really mean inventions, right? We define it differently. We can talk about that too later. But when you see that list, it's like the light bulb and it's all this technical technology stuff and that's fine. But this is not about studying what innovators did. It's how they did it so that we can do it too. So we can do it on Monday, right? And so therefore is the idea of, so uh, Picasso, the way he did his work, we have, we have nothing to learn from him. Of course we do. Democracy. When the ancient Greeks came up with democracy, the pre-innovation states of democracy is Egyptian monarchy, right? What an unbelievable leap. And so that, you include that. You have to include democracy because the leap from, pre, from Egyptian monarchy or even the caves to democracy is tremendous. And the way they did it, you can learn from that. So, yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I'm, I'm glad you noticed that. We definitely – technology is a subset of innovation. We do not only focus on technology. Because all the other ways humans have been creative and innovative, we can learn from those too. I mean, I would say like the Beatles, right? Even the show Seinfeld. I mean, I've been thinking about this lately. You know the show Seinfeld, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I'm going to do the seven innovation questions applied by the Seinfeld people. I can do it off the top of my head. So um, the short way to phrase it is, yeah, technology is great. But if you want to extrapolate general, deeper principles around innovation, you absolutely have to look beyond technology to things like the arts and philosophy and, and government. Basically, anything that's been innovation on Earth is fair game. Uh, yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I'm kind of curious because it seems like, or I'm, I'm curious if this is the thing that you notice. Um, do you see like innovation occurring kind of in like spurts or are like most time periods like pretty even in the amount of innovation that's produced? That's a great question. Um, I, I don't usually get that question. Um, I can address it. I think it's cool. Um, I think that to some degree, if you look at a plotted curve of innovation, uh, you know, you, you do see innovation in all those time periods I mentioned. But there are definitely chronological clusters, and that's partly because, as we know, if you study clusters, people, you know, getting together can feed off each other. Like one famous cluster is, of course, Athens, right, and all the incredible things that the ancient Greeks did. Another cluster is the Enlightenment in Europe, right? Um, there's a cluster in Silicon Valley happening. And so, yeah, I think uh, there's definitely, I mean, there's geographic spatial clusters in terms of where, but I think there's also clusters or bunches of innovations that happen um, at specific times. Uh, and and you, if you look back, you can trace the forces that led to those, to those, uh, those chronological uh, clusters. Like, for example, right now, I think in the last 30 years, we're, we've hit an incredible innovation cluster and more to the point, even looking forward, right now, right now, not even 10 years ago, now we are facing the widest range of profound uh, emerging technologies that we've ever seen in human history, far beyond industrial revolution, agricultural revolution, or even the web, things like that. So I think we're in the middle or, or at the beginning 
of another uh, massive cluster. But sure, uh, you, people sometimes talk about the Dark Ages as a fallow period for innovation, right? Um, ironically, I read an incredible book called recently called How the West Won, not How the West Was Won, but How the West Won, and it sort of debunks that notion that the Middle Ages was, uh, the Dark Ages were this, this time where nothing really was happening. And they basically say, yeah, actually, the Greeks came up with a lot of theories around scientific method, but it took people like Francis Bacon and other like Dark Ages type um, yeah, intellectuals to really move into the experimental zone as opposed to just walking around in a toga, in essence, thinking about things. So that's a bit of a debate. But yeah, I think there's definitely times when there's more innovation than other times, and there's definitely discernible forces as to why that happens. Yeah, well, that's great. I mean, if that doesn't make you optimistic about the future, I don't know what will. Sure. Over the next 30 years, anyway. Yeah. So I'm curious, so as you've done all of this, do you mind talking about a, maybe like three of your favorite case studies of innovations that you've studied? Sure. Maybe kind of weird ones, yeah, I'll give if, you three. if you can find some? Yeah, I'll give you the... I'll, yeah, I'll, give you, I'll try to give you some good ones and some weird ones. Bow and arrow is an incredible one. So this is, and this is, I try to do this with a little comedy when it's face to face. We'll see if we can make it work. So um, uh, let's see. And by the way, what I'm about to tell you is not just about the bow and arrow. It's also about the power of just interconnecting things. And it's also why we don't innovate. <laughs> so at the end, I'll show you why this funny story is also why we don't innovate in the modern era, right? But yeah, the spear and the bow and arrow. So think of it. You know, 400,000 years ago, the spear was invented, right? We were all basically just like proto-humans fighting each other on the, out on the, on the plains of Europe or someplace or Africa. And if you ran tribe A and I ran tribe B, right, we fight each other with spears, right? And if we could be a little comical, make it like a sports thing. I'd be like, hey, how's it going there, Grog, <laughs> the caveman? Hey, we're going to go up against you guys Saturday, man. We're going to kick your ass, right? <laughs> you know, it's like we're going to have a battle, and of course we're going to use spears, right? Now, I'll ask you this as the interviewer. What's the next? So, so obviously bow and arrow is the next phase of human warfare, right? Yeah. Yeah. So the question I ask is, um, how long, how many, for how many years did people like you and I running our respective tribes fight, basically battles, with just a spear instead of a bow and arrow? The answer is 391,000 years without figuring out. You can take the sharp, the sharp stick and attach it to something that goes boing, which is basically cat gut. The minute you do that, right, what do you get? Say you are the tribe that keeps the spear. Good for you. I show up on a Thursday. Right? We don't have a calendar yet, but let's say it's a Thursday. And I have this crazy projectile ability. I can shoot that sharp thing further. I can shoot it faster and with greater power and with greater accuracy. Guess who wins that battle? You're dead, right? But the, the interesting thing is, so I say to people in my, my clients is, if you're good at something, you're in danger. Those guys were good at the spear, right? If you're, in fact, the better you are at the spear, let's say you and I are the best people in our tribes at the spear, that's why we're the leaders, we are the least likely to see the next thing, right? right. The minute someone in the tribe shows us the bow and arrow, a prototype, the crappy version, we're going to reject it. Not just because we don't understand it, because it directly diminishes our power. And so I love the story. I'm, I was stunned when I did the research. I say sometimes our jackass ancestors, it's amazing we're still here. It took them 391,000 years to figure out something so simple that, that would lead to them to win every battle, right? So that's a cool story. And, I, and so the, the, the practical way is I say to people, I want you to realize that everything you're good at right now, especially if you're in your 50s like me or older, yet you have expertise, is the spear. <laughs> you're good at it. You're perfecting the spear. You're painting new colors on the spear. And somebody is coming up with the bow and arrow. For example, Hilton, right? 
or any hotel chain. They got good at the spear. And like you picture a Hilton Hotel meet, executive meeting from like eight years ago, they're trying to make the rooms cleaner and trying to make the beds softer. Meanwhile, Airbnb is coming at them like a two by four from the side. Traditional hotels is the spear, and then Airbnb is basically the bow and arrow. Or the taxi industry is the spear, and Uber is, or Lyft, we say, is the bow and arrow. So to me, it's a fascinating story, and I'm stunned it took us that long. But the instructive thing is to realize there's always a better thing coming. And it, the more expertise you have in the current thing, the less likely you are to be able to see, forget, forget create, but even understand what the next thing is. So that's something that executives really have to focus on. They have to realize there's a cognitive blindness or there's a myopia around the new thing if they're good at the old thing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And, and for people listening, I feel like you just saved them a, a pretty like dense book, uh, The Innovator's Dilemma. I mean, you put it in like pretty fun yeah, terms and uh, like the core message that you shared, uh, just like got the whole book done so people can like take that, set aside, get something new. Exactly. That great lesson, I think you distilled into such a short period of time. So that's great. Yeah. Um, and if, am I allowed to, in this interview to whack other innovation people in a comical way? Yeah, go go for it. Can I do that? Can, I, can we make a little news? Or is this my hot take? Um, Clay Christensen, I think that book is a good book, although it's incredibly obvious. Like, you know, you know, you're doing the old thing. How do you do the new thing and still do the old thing? Well, you know, that's, it's, it's, it, you know, it's one insight that's to a book. But the weird thing about Clay Christensen and, and those guys at Intersight, and I've actually talked to them about this, there's a thing called the Innovation Premium, which that's the way Forbes measures it, like thousand greatest, the most innovative companies. And again, like Innovator's Dilemma was a fine book, but this shows you how quickly you can fall off the path in innovation. If you look up why Forbes uses the, the Clay Christensen, basically, Innovator's Premium, it's absolutely Lord of the Rings fantasy. It has nothing to do with real innovation. It's about like how the stock market brings your value versus what you're doing right now. There's some incredible conceptual leap. Like if your company is doing X, Y, Z now, but the, the, the stock market, you know, the market values you at a higher market cap, that's, they call that an innovation premium, which I don't know if you can tell from my brief description is patently crazy. It has nothing to do with innovation. So again, I wish those guys well. And Clay Christensen has written a couple of good books, but you know, to me today, that begs the other question: measuring innovation. The, the innovation premium is a terrible way to measure innovation, and yet it is the way that one of the leading business magazines, Forbes, uses to measure uh, innovation. Right. So, anyway, that's enough whacking of other other innovation. Oh well, no, that's super interesting because it's it's just based on like what everyone already thinks is innovative. Oh so, my like, god, it's terrible. So it's like anchored in the past constantly. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Well, the pro I mean, look, I can go on and I'll give you a couple more bullets about the craziness of the innovation premium. Um, one of the problems is you're using the stock market to, to identify innovation. The stock market is terrible at, at understanding innovation because it's a collective mind. It's always like late to the party or usually late to the party. The other thing is there's a million things. If your company is valued, your market cap is greater than what you can attribute to current products and services, there's a million reasons why the market might like your company more than that current stuff, as you said, a great CEO, a great vision, a bad competitive set, interesting trends in the world. In fact, almost everything but innovation goes into that idea of why your market cap would be higher than what you can attribute to current activities. So, yeah, it's a. But again, I, I walk around this earth sometimes feeling like you know I'm, I'm emperor has no clothes guy, because uh, if that is the formula used by Forbes. And by the way, look at that list sometime. It's hilarious. You'll see Apple and Alphabet up there, but you'll also see literally in the top 10 recently, 
like five, four of them or something were Unilever subgroups. It was like Malaysian Unilever <laughs> subsidiary. So you see Apple, Alphabet, and then Malaysian Unilever. And then you'll see Amazon, somebody else, and some other like really div- almost like a division of a larger company. But because the algorithm has them being valued by the stock market at higher than current activities, they make it onto the list. Anyway, if you want to have some innovation kookiness, check out the Forbes greatest and most innovative companies listen and have a laugh. Yeah, that sounds great. Uh, One thing before I forget about it, you gave a couple of examples. Can you talk about the Seinfeld example? Yeah, I I will. We'll do breaking news on your on your podcast. I've never put this in a presentation, but here's an example. So, you know, the show Seinfeld, right? Yeah. And most people listening probably would as well. So here's a great example. One of the most important questions that have been asked to create innovations for millions of years is the very basic but profound question, what can we look at differently, right? I mean, that is the first question in our Lumiami list, and it is the mother or the father or whatever of all the questions. Here's an example of how someone from Seinfeld did that. And I didn't realize this until maybe a couple of months ago. So you remember the Kramer character, the crazy next door neighbor? Yeah. Okay, of course, right? So Kramer, when he started on the show, so, you know, for people that don't know, Seinfeld was an American comedy, 1989 to 1998, you know, was like the greatest sitcom of all time, blah, blah, blah. Four characters, uh, basically run by two comedians in New York, Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David. When they started the show, Kramer, played by Michael Richards, was supposed to be this kooky shut-in who lived across the hall and really never left his apartment, right? And he was kooky and lovable, but like kind of eccentric. And the, and Michael Richards later said, when I first started acting as Kramer, and again, for people who don't know the show, Kramer is this unbelievably wonderful, crazy character that everybody loves. So Kramer, when he would do his scenes, his mental model was, okay, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a step behind everybody else, right? So if someone on the show says like, yeah, we got the non-fat yogurt, he would say, oh, uh, how did they get the fat out or something? He's behind, right? And it just wasn't working that well. So he used an innovation question when he was thinking about his character. He said, hold on a second. What if I just paint myself as this eccentric guy who's a step ahead of everybody, right, as instead of behind? And so you'll notice in the earlier years, like years one and two, he's kind of lovable because he's behind. But it's very clear, really around season three and four, he would come in more with this knowing air, like he was the guy who's like, oh, I know a guy who knows a guy. Or they would say something about like accidents at sea. And the, the, they started writing him as ahead of the curve. Like he even said this joke, like, yeah, that, that's from my book, Great Accidents at Sea. And like, oh, God, <laughs> this guy's written a book about sea accidents. So, uh, you know, as the show moved on, the Kramer character, because he said, I'm going to look at it differently. I'm not the recluse who's behind everything. I'm more like the eccentric, kooky guy who knows everything, who knows a little bit about everything. Who's a, I'm an expert on Cuban cigars. I'm an expert on the Miss America pageant was a whole other episode. I'm an expert on slicing meat. Like he became this kind of polymath genius who was always a step ahead of the other three. And so here's the point about innovation. If he hadn't asked the question, hmm, my character's not quite working. What can I look at differently? Who knows? Maybe that would have just been sort of like a less funny character. It's always kind of goofy and behind. Or maybe the show goes off the air or who knows. But because he specifically said, I'm going to look at it differently. I'm the guy ahead of the curve. He became this hilarious spark who was always getting And then the writer started writing for him, right? right. When you look, when you're an actor, you look at your role differently. You deliver your lines a little differently. And the writer's thinking, you know what? I bet Kramer would know a little bit about chess. 
right? He probably knows a chess master. Like he just knows everybody. So then people start reacting to you differently. So that's kind of a long version of the idea of that simple question that Michael Richards asked about his character. What can I look at differently? Led him to the answer to hell with being half a step behind. I'm going to be half a step ahead. And that is absolutely central to the power and humor of the Kramer character and to that show. So that's a great example of one question, what can we look at differently, as, a, as an incredibly powerful uh, uh, inspiration to innovation. Yeah, oh, that, that's first a couple of thoughts. I have a quick question. So at what point in the show did he start doing the thing where he like blasts the door open and like slides in? Was that around that like season three time? I actually know too, way too much about this because okay. I've been studying this lately. The short answer is I think he started doing that around the second or third season. And again, he practiced it for hours, and they had to tell the audience in seasons like three and four, please don't applaud when he comes in because it breaks, it breaks the frame of the show. Um, but I'll connect it to what I just said. If you're a recluse who never gets out of your apartment, right, you're, you're, not, you're, you're, not, you're less apt. I think you would have been less apt to, to burst into the door like an explosion, right? right? But if you're this spooky guy who's super worldly and is just so excited about everything, that's going to be more natural when you burst into the room like a crazy person, right? So I think he started doing that around uh, seasons uh, maybe, I think it was probably two and three. I mean, if you look at the first, if you look at the physicality of the first season, he was almost kind of sleepy, you know, because if he's playing um, half step behind, he was sleepy. He did not move like that. So again, that's a good follow-up question. I think he's crazily bashing into the room and flinging the door open. You don't get that unless you use that, what can I look at different uh, question to create the character differently. Right. Well, it seems like so much of what who he is is this explosive uh, character um, yeah. that really came out of that yeah. uh, that that just single question was really powerful. Uh, I think there's another, yeah. the other lesson I would take away from it too is for other, really like any kind of innovator, but like you're, you're going to look kind of stupid when you're first starting because like no one's going to get it. Yes. Like by the time everyone agrees that it's a good idea, it's no longer an innovation. Yep. I'll give, and I'll give you another, I agree with you, and, and a good aphorism for that is, if it's new, it's going to be bad. And if it's old, if, if it's good, it's going to be old. <laughs> and I think that's true, and you're right, because it's like, let's think of the bow and arrow thing, right? If you have a tribe of people who perfected the spear, and for hundreds of thousands of years, man, they got it right, the first bow and arrow is going to look like crap, right? And I could like to picture that first innovator, that crazy person who said, you know, I had this cat gut, and it goes boing. I'm going to try to rig this thing up. It was terrible. It would have to be terrible. That's where you get iteration and lean manufacturing and everything, a minimum viable product, MVP. So, yeah, that, and that is one of the reasons why innovation doesn't happen. You know, if you're a leader, do you want to go to this new weird-looking thing, the bow and arrow? I don't even know what the hell it does. Or do you want to stick with your beautiful spear, right? And so I think that's one of the problems, and that's why people laugh at the new thing. Because if they – I mean, if you just looked at the – ugly early first bow and arrows you see a really a terrible version of a spear you need the vision to see wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute the human arm can only throw something so far this thing can shoot it will be able eventually to shoot it much further you need the vision to be able to see what what could be and if you don't have that you're just going to laugh at the new thing yeah and in, and in the meantime even if you have the vision you have to have that willingness to look stupid for a little while Exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's why Kramer is probably a pretty good example. Yeah, exactly. You have to, you have to ignore, you know, Shakespeare, the slings and arrows, right? You have to, that's why on another point, the innovators I know in Silicon Valley, especially at Autodesk, they have two things. They have vision and they also have guts yeah. <laughs> you have to, or thick skin. You have to have the ability to say, to shout people down, to just persist, to ignore your boss. You have to have that ability 
not just to, to look stupid, but to risk your career, you know, to, uh-huh. to, to fight the powers that be, as they say. So it's, it's definitely, you have to be oh, sure you have to be willing to look stupid and to be mocked, et cetera. But even beyond that, you also, in many cases, have to be able to willing to risk uh, your career and your credibility. And that's a rare person. I mean, it's really three things when you think about it. One is the vision. And then two is the ability to exercise it. That's execution and discipline. And the third thing is emotional resiliency. So that, so say you've done your great vision, you know how the world's going to be. Number two, you have a version of it through execution and, and you're still getting, you know, getting incredible pushback to have the emotional resiliency to push through that. That's the third thing you really need. Can you give kind of like a big picture view of how yeah, you're currently think, using yeah. the program, just like overall and kind of what, what your role is with that now? So when we talk about how do we apply this methodology, uh, we do it really uh, inside and outside the company. We really started it for customers, um, again, because they were coming to us asking us about innovation. And we really didn't have a lot of great answers, you know. So we went through a period and for about eight or ten, really eight or nine years, I was the CEO speechwriter at Autodesk. So we would do all these great speeches on innovation. The CEO would talk about it. And it, it was good, but it was a lot of it's what I would call innovation poetry. It was just interesting thinking and, and, and thoughts, really almost feelings about innovation. Um, and, and a lot of it was good. Um, but when the customers started coming to us saying, yeah, but how do you actually innovate? That's what led to this project, really. So uh, the top level of how we've applied it in the last five years is, let's say you are a $30 billion customer of Autodesk. And you, are, you know, you make things, whatever it is. It could be Bechtel, Nike, whatever, Airbus. You come to Autodesk and through the salespeople, you say something like, listen, I love your software, but what do you guys know about innovation? And then, um, generally speaking, we will set up a session with them. And uh, the sessions can range from like a morning, like a couple of hours, all the way up to five full days. And the basic thing we do is I will give a, I will give a presentation about the research a lot of what we've been talking about today and how we came to this research methodology and how we came to the techniques to give a presentation and really get them into the historical innovation mindset um, to try to inspire these corporate people who've often been locked in very hierarchical organizations so we do a presentation and then um, we usually move on to an innovation target and right there like if we start at nine o'clock you know we do the presentation about an hour some Q&A, and then around 10.30, we dive right into their innovation target, which we can either drive on the spot or we've done it before, and we start using the methodology. We start saying, all right, if that's the target, let's brainstorm around it. We use the seven questions of innovation. And so then once we generate the, the widest range of ideas using those questions, which is really step three in the methodology, then we prioritize across this thing we call wild world. It's got to be a wild idea. It's got to be surprising, exciting, delighting, whatever you want to say. And it also has to be um, something the customer is not expecting and neither is the competitor, right? So we prioritize it. The best ideas are really, really wild, but also really practical. So we call it wild and worldly, right? Two W's. And then we help them to turn those best ideas into innovation projects. And, you know, if we have four hours with them, we can do the presentation in one innovation target. And that will usually lead to a couple of projects. If we have a day, we'll do two or three uh, innovation targets, and that leads to a bunch of projects. That's pretty typical that we'll do it in a half day or a day with a company. And again, I've done about 300 of these innovation sessions. Uh, no, sorry, I've done about uh, I've done it with 300 different companies and done about 600 actual innovation sessions. So that's what I'm when I'm talking about this stuff. That's that's the numbers I'm talking about. 
Um, so usually it's a half day or a day, and it combines theory and practice because, you know, as I said, we describe the process and we also then actually do the work. Sometimes a company called Floor, um, very large customer, great company, they did a full week at Autodesk, and they um, come up with all these great innovation targets, and uh, we worked with uh, executives and people from all over the, the world from Floor and um, came up with a, a ton of innovation projects for them. So that's basically how it works. We do the presentation, describe the techniques, but then we very quickly dive into actually helping them innovate right on the spot. Then the closing thing really is after the great week, usually it's in San Francisco, after that fun week, um, we will have at Autodesk customer success managers or CSMs or salespeople following up with those customers to see if they want to continue to apply the techniques. And, you know, some of the nicest emails I get are from people in those companies. I haven't talked to them for six months, and they'll send me a picture of like a whiteboard with my technique up there, and they've been using it. Or someone will say, did you hear this idea is out now, and it came from the genome. So um, I have less visibility in what they do once they leave San Francisco. Uh, but uh, basically my goal is to have them leave the session with some incredible projects that they never would have thought of before that are innovative. What I'll do for listeners is I will take the audio of that presentation so people can see that framework view, and I'll make that a podcast I'll post um, around the time that That's this great. goes live so that um, people can have a have a little deeper understanding of what you're t- talking about. And it's, it's a super entertaining presentation. I, I thought it was a lot of fun. I think other people will enjoy it too. Yeah, I appreciate you yeah. being uh, generous and want to share that. Do you want to talk about how you have like taken this methodology and are helping other companies apply it, and even within Autodesk, helping uh, people within Autodesk apply it? Let's see. The first one that really hit was um, at Autodesk, actually, a thing called Eco Materials Advisor. Um, a woman named Sarah Crazley that I worked with at Autodesk, she had used the genome techniques on some of the work she was doing and basically credits uh, the genome technique with, with what I'm about to describe. They were um, trying to get people to do sustainable design. But the problem was, like, if you and I are building a house, we, it was like, oh, God, how much is it going to cost to do sustainable materials? We couldn't really estimate it. So um, going through a process using, I mean, of course, among other things, but some of the innovation genome stuff, they created this thing called Eco Materials Advisor, and it was a quick way to instantly say, oh, what if we use this material? What if we use that material? How much would it cost? You know, how would we do it? Things like that. So, and she wrote that up in Fast Company. That was kind of the first press that we got, basically saying, hey, here's a new way. Here's something invented by a guy at my company, at Autodesk, um, that helped Autodesk expand its portfolio. So does that make sense? That's one story. So I think something interesting that like this plays into is, or it's getting a lot of attention now, is the future of work. Like a lot of people are talking about the threat of automation, pretty massive job loss all across the board, you know, like uh, autonomous trucks taking over truck driving jobs and all that kind of thing. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a that's a great pitch for me to try to hit too, because I've spent, I started a present, uh, I really started a working on future of work stuff at Autodesk in earnest two years ago, but in some ways four years ago. So I've been thinking about this a lot. Um, And I've done a whole bunch of interviews with, um, you know, thought leaders (laughs) to the extent that there are thought leaders. It's so confusing. Um, Yeah, so my take on the future of work is, let's see, one, um, the reason it's happening, there's so much disruption and so much fear, frankly, is we've never in human history been faced with so many emerging technologies that had the potential to change things so profoundly. And I'll run down the list, robotics automation, right? Um, Internet of Things, uh, AR, VR, and of course, artificial intelligence, uh, machine learning, deep learning. 
and down the line, quantum computing, bio, nano, stuff like that, there is no time in history that we've been even close. Even if you just look at artificial intelligence, you could make this argument. But this is the most disruptive set of technologies we've ever seen in human history. We're absolutely not ready for it, I don't think. Um, so, What do you mean not ready for it? Like, society, like societally and culturally, or what? Oh, we're not even close to ready for it. We're not, what we're not ready for is... Um, well, actually, before I say why we're not ready for it, let me tell you another dynamic. So there's the individual emerging technologies I mentioned, and then how they all merge together. <laughs> That's why five to seven years from now, it's going to be even wilder than we can picture right now, because these technologies are not just evolving, they're connecting with each other, right? So why aren't we ready for it? The human mind does not think exponentially. You know, Singularity University people love to talk about this. Human mind thinks linearly, and I think that um, I'll just say the average person, when they think about their own job and how technology is going to influence it, they can't see what the technology is going to take their job, how quickly that's going to happen. They certainly can't see the combination of technology that's going to take their job. So I think we are, um, you know, there's a lot of thought leadership about this. Even the thought leadership on future work is not great because at the most it'll say this particular technology five to 12 years from now is going to do this. Almost nobody connects the technologies. You know, that was one of the things I've been working on at Audit is connecting them. But I also think um, government is not ready. Government thinks that you address emerging technologies and try to help the constituents by training and retraining. Retraining problems, pro programs are terrible, at least in the United States, right? And, and it's not even that. It's the mindset. You know, I think even professionals are sort of like, yeah, you know, either they're terrified that the technology take the jobs or they're a little bit blasé. So, you know, either response is not great. So um, anyway, I, I'm, I'm maybe sounding a little darker than I actually am. <laughs> I think, a little bit. <laughs> I, I think, um, yeah, I, I think um, the shift to optimism for a second is um, I like to, one of the phrases we coined, probably other people did too, but at us it's called the augmented age, right? The best way to think of your job, your work, your profession is to think you're going to do what humans are good at doing and let the technology augment your capabilities like superpowers, right? In fact, you should actively look and see which technologies can augment what you do as a professional. So I gave a list of technologies that are radical and, and important, right? What is going to be kept for the humans? So here's another bulleted list, right? Five, 10, 15 years even, what can humans do? Just pretend we call all the technologies the brilliant machines, right? The brilliant machines are coming, and when they're here, what will humans do for work and to add economic value? Things like this, um, empathy, uh, compassion, caring about other people and trying to create great experiences for them, right? For some time, at least, uh, computers are not going to be as good as we are. Another one is creativity, innovation, surprise, um, you know, invention, things like that. Uh, again, out of all the things, computers are incredible at computing and a million other things. They're, they're at least now and in the foreseeable future, I believe, will be less adept at creativity and innovation and those kind of things than human beings. Um, uh, another thing is like looking at things holistically. Uh, and there's a whole bunch of um, what we used to call sort of the soft skills that humans are intrinsically better at, things like communication, things like collaboration, certainly uh, adaptation and improvisation and responsiveness, right? I mean, there's, there's a lot of computer that can beat any player in the world at the game Go. I think I read this recently. If you change one of the rules of go slightly, the thing collapses, basically. Oh, so, <laughs> cool. Human, isn't that interesting? So, so I think the key thing that anybody who has a job even has to think about is, all right, look, given the brilliant machines, and so it, it pays, it's worth your time to understand what the brilliant machines are and how quickly they're going to come and how they're going to connect. 
given those brilliant machines coming and working together, what can I add? What can I add that's better than a machine? That's the thing people are not used to thinking about. You know, either, either people are rushing towards technology frantically, like a little kid unwrapping a present on Christmas, like, oh, the internet web, and that's fine. Or they're shrinking in horror from the matrix. You know, I think there's a more balanced response in the middle where, again, the augmented age, right? If you, unless you're retired, right, or you just don't want to work, you're independently wealthy. If you are working, you've got to just think, all right, partnership with technology. An eager partnership, a willing one that you look ahead and say, I'm actively looking forward to um, certain parts of my job going to the machine so I can do other stuff that's more based on natural human skills. So everything I just said, you know, I mean, I believe it, but it's like I think governments are woefully behind. Um, some businesses are okay. Businesses are usually pretty good at adapting and adopting new technology. They're less good at retraining their workers, right? So retraining is going to be the big learning, unlearning, and uh, and and relearning, right? Uh, as Alan, Alvin Toffler said. So I think um, I, I'm I'm optimistic we can do it. I'm optimistic. It's almost like a river we have to forge and get across to the other side. But my fear is that you know if we don't, if we meaning thought leaders and businesses and workers and the government, if we don't kind of work together on this stuff, I think that there could be massive unemployment, at least in this com- country. Um, you know, five to seven years out, and it could last for a while. Like, I'm, I'm kind of afraid that that's going to happen. Uh, on the other side, if you crack this retraining thing and really partner with technologies, then I think, then I think things will actually be better than they are today. Yeah, well, it's kind of a mixed bag for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. That'll be super interesting. I think that's something that I, I'm interested in, you know, long-term with the podcast is helping people understand how to embrace more of that uh, high-value ad work and do a little bit less of the you know, rote, uh, robotic tasks themselves. La- last couple questions are: uh, what, what books and resources have been most useful to you, and uh, what, what do you find yourself most op- often recommending that people will check out? Well, let's see. I would say um, I'd say there's three books that I think you know. Uh, here are the th- I'll put it this way: here are the three books that if if I poll my audience and say who's read this, if they haven't read them, I make fun of them and upbraid them. Okay, is that okay? I'll tell you the books that my God, you have to read. Um, let's. See. Okay, the first one is Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, right, which is this incredible, incredible story, philosophical book um, written in 1974. It's about technology. It's about quality. It's about hum- humanity and everything. So Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, that is – and that's, it's also got incredible lessons about creativity and paying attention to things and changing. So Zen and the Art of Motorcycle is number one. Um, number two would be uh, The Singularity is Near, the Ray Kurzweil book. Um, Ray Kurzweil from Singularity University in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Basically, I guess this is probably now a 10 years old book. And the guy's been right mostly about predicting technology way in the future. Um, I do believe he's a genius with tech, and he also, you know, was the main founder of Singularity. So his book, The Singularity is Near, is a primer. You kind of have to read that. Um, if that's number two, 2A is a book um, recommended to me by my CTO at Audest, Jeff Kowalski. And it's called The Golden Age. And he said, if you like the singularity, which is, fiction, which is well, it's nonfiction. Um, some people say it's fiction. It's a, it's a book about the world. He said, here's a science fiction book that basically takes everything in the singularity is true and moves us forward 10,000 years. And it's called The Golden Age. So that's my 2A recommendation. So if one is Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, two is Singularity is Near, 2A is The Golden Age because it's a fictional version basically of the singularity and things like it. And three is going to be a really out of left field one, but it's a book I love called Up the Organization 
written by a guy named Robert Townsend in, I guess it was 1969 and the 1984 maybe update. Basically, an incredible, short, hilarious book on how to work with people and how to work and what's wrong with corporations. And I probably read it once every two years. It's called Up the Organization. And it was a seminal business book. It was probably the first like pop successful business book. And then Tom Peters did In Search of Excellence later. But Up the Organization started the genre of like hipster, you know, business innovation books, but it's still really relevant today. If you're in a big corporation, you should read it. If you're starting a company, you should read it. If you're in a startup, you should read it. If you're an independent consultant, you should read it. So those are my three, those are my four. Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, uh, Singularity is Near, Golden Age, and Up the Organization. Yeah, that's awesome. Thanks so much for sharing your time with me, Morning. I really, I had a blast talking to you. It was, it was a lot of fun for me. I think other people will get a lot of value out of it too. <laughs> If you like our conversation, you should definitely check out the next episode, which is the audio from his presentation at Autodesk University. I'll put a link to his video in the show notes as well. If you want to hear more conversations like this one, make sure you are subscribed to Why Try in your podcast app. You can also find a complete list of Why Try episodes at nicholaspeel.com, link in the show notes, where you can find writing about mindset, entrepreneurship, investing, and cooking. And yes, I did say cooking. I have a ton of great recipes and I'm putting them all together on my website for all the world to see and use. That's nicholaspeel.com, home of Why Try. Music for this podcast is by Cambrian Explosion, who went deep sea fishing off the coast of Israel and accidentally caught the sea monster Leviathan. So they sped back to land and flew home the long way to avoid encountering the creature again. You can find their music under Cambrian Explosion on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and cepdx.bandcamp.com. Thanks for listening.